Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode, a guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another, games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. For the first time uh, ever in Checkpoints history, I have multiple guests on the show today. I'm joined by Andrew Sackler and Tim Kinsey. Uh, they're both, uh, the day jobs are, are editors. They work out in LA on various TV shows. Um, but the reason that I sort of came to, to speak to them is because they've just released a documentary called Man vs. Snake, uh, which is about a guy called Tim McVeigh who got, who got the first ever billion point score on a, a game of Nibbler. And it's the story of that and then how kind of many years later he's trying to recapture that goal. And it's really interesting because it's, like, I mean, the obvious comparison is King of Kong, and they are kind of similar sort of tales, and there's a lot of the, the same sort of faces, like Billy Mitchell, of course, and, and Walter Day. Um, but it's it's a really brilliant film. I'm going to recommend it uh, a bunch of times throughout the show. Uh, and it's not just the, a straight-up chill. Like, it's it's really good. I, I, I highly recommend you watching it. If you listen to this show and you enjoy it, you will definitely uh, enjoy the movie. I thought it was uh, extra appropriate that this movie, this, uh, not movie, well, the movie is out as well, but well, this episode came out uh, during Summer Games Done Quick, which is always one of my, my highlights of the, the video game year. Uh, because this is, I mean, this is very much, it's not. It's, it's almost the opposite of a speed run. This is video game as, as marathon. Um, it's really interesting, really good movie. And Andrew and Tim were, were both great and really exciting kind of, hearing the the background of the movie where the the movie came from you know i mean i was kind of nerding out a little bit because both of them th- this whole documentary came to be because andrew brought in a, a main cabinet to the editing suite of battlestar galactica which they were both working on it's very very exciting and they're just really good guys and have talked a lot about how especially kind of vintage games kind of really informs their their childhoods and their kind of uh aesthetic and appreciation and how certainly this game led them on this incredible uh, incredible journey which they've now documented i hope you enjoy the show i hope you're continuing to uh, enjoy the show uh, if you do i mean i do say this every week about the itunes so i'm not going to mention it as much anymore because i'm kind of annoying myself but what i'm going to try and do is if everybody listening to the episode i mean i'm sure everybody isn't going to do it but you know why not shoot for the moon? If everybody listening to the episode were to write a review or leave a rating on iTunes, that would be just the best. If I can get maybe like a swell of people to do it in in a, in a single week, it really helps kind of promote and, and boost the show and makes, makes me feel very happy. <laughs> if you'd like to get in touch, you can email the show. It's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at checkpointspodcast and on Twitter at checkpointsshow. It's very important to have consistent branding. You can also follow me on Twitter if you like. It's at Declan Deneen, D-E-C-L-A-N-D-I-N-E-N. Okay, I'll be back next week with uh, a new episode and a new guest. But for now, let's get on with the show.
Okay, uh, gentlemen, how are you both? Are you both well? Yeah, yeah. You're doing good. What's uh, what's on the cards for today? It's early on uh, on a Tuesday morning for you guys. Well, um, I think Tim's already at work, right? You're yeah, I'm at work. We're, we're you know we have jobs as TV editors, yeah. and um, so I'm getting a cutout to the producers for one of the last episodes of the season, a uh, show called Beyond. Okay, I don't know that show. I'm sorry, I'm not familiar it's, with that. Oh no, it's okay. It's it's yeah, you wouldn't have heard of it. It's, it hasn't aired yet. All right, okay, okay, cool. <laughs> Um, yeah, and I just uh, I'm just sipping a coffee in my home office. I don't have to be in for another uh, 45 minutes. So I can do the call from home, and then I'm working on a show called Westworld, which is based oh, on amazing. Uh, the the old show. Is that um, Ken Levine? Was he involved in that? Um, I don't know who's Ken Levine. Ken Levine is the guy who made Bioshock and Bioshock Infinite and System Shock. Oh, I see. No, not not that I'm aware of. I mean, it's a uh, it's a show for. Uh, it's produced by Warner Brothers for HBO, and J.J. Abrams is one of the producers. And uh, oh. based on based on the um, Westworld um, movie from the nineteen seventies. Hey, which exciting! Was direct, That's directed great. by Michael Crichton. Yeah, so it's fun. It's fun. Robots, robots, and humans trying to figure out their issues with each other. You know. <laughs> that is, yeah. That's the whole kind of the the robots in the theme park going rogue. Yeah. Which surely yeah. we're only a few years away from now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Scary. Um, yeah. Siri, Siri's going to take over. I wouldn't mind that. Siri's Siri's quite nice. And to be honest, the weekend that I've had here in in Britain, I think the robots might have a better a better idea of how to run things. To be honest. Oh gosh, yeah. Uh, it's been it's been quite quite the few days. Anyway, we're not here to to talk about that. Um, for the sake of, of formal introductions, though, I'll just do a, a general intro. So, uh, Tim. And Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show. If you don't mind, would you introduce yourselves? We'll start with Tim. Uh, my name is Tim Kinsey, and uh, I'm in Los Angeles. And I'm Andrew Seckler, one of the director-producers of Man vs. Snake. And um, I'm, I, too, reside in Los Angeles. Oh, I, too, am a producer-director of Man vs. Snake. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get onto that, though, like I don't know if you've listened to the show, but this is generally... I try and talk to people about the the games that have kind of shaped their lives in in some fashion uh-huh. or another. And clearly, you know, games are now playing a huge part of your life. But uh, if you can remember, what was the the first game you ever played or your first experience of a, a video game? And we'll start with Tim. We're, we're, we're doing that order since we started that way. Oh, okay. Um, no, I, I was. Um, I think when I was about five. You know, this is before Atari's came out. There was like a. I think a Sears Telestar, uh, like a Pong unit that you hooked up to your black and white TV. And the console and the joystick were all in the same box. And so you could play two people playing Pong, and that was my first uh, video game. Did you love it? Was it? Did it blow your mind? Oh, it was incredible that you could just play this game at, at home. And uh, Yeah, and then I think I was introduced to the Atari VCS, the, the 2600 Um well before I was aware of any of the, you know, popular games, you know, we would go to Shakey's Pizza and you might find a Space Invaders and this is all like pre-Pac-Man era. But yeah, I mean, this is going to be interesting because I like I don't I've never done this with two people before. So are you both around the same sort of age? Yeah, I'm, a, I'm this is Andrew. I'm a year older than Tim. 
um, just almost exactly a year, like we're like maybe a year and a month apart. But um, you know, I, we both grew up in the '80s, right? So we were right yeah. at that age, uh, teenagers, right as video games were hitting. And um, I too had a Pong. I remember my my dad brought home a Pong, and we played that. And um, and then later, you know, discovered video games walking home from school. I grew up in New York, and there in New York, there are these little what they call you know neighborhood that I grew up in uh, called bodegas, which are like little mini stores. You know, they they would sell candy and cut meats and 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 different things, but they also had they often had like one or two arcade machines kind of squirreled away in the back of the store, okay. <laughs> where kids where kids would sink their quarters. And I never really had any quarters, you know. I didn't have a lot of money growing up, so I often would just go and hang out and watch other people play. Um, asteroids. I remember seeing asteroids for the first time, and Pat and uh, Space Invaders in a bodega on West Ninety Sixth Street, and um, it kind of blew my mind. And and because I had a lot of time to hang out and just watch people play, um, I kind of really fell in love with the whole thing. Like you know, just you know, seeing people compete on the games, but also being able to really study the cabinets themselves and the side art on the cabinets and the graphics on the games, you know, cause I, I didn't, I wasn't engaged in like hitting the button. So I was just sort of fascinated about just this object in itself kind of thing, this thing. And also just like what went into making them, like who came up with this, yeah. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> what in the, the, the fact that there was this whole universe in the game, I wasn't, because I wasn't, I guess, distracted by the mediated experience of playing it. My mind really went kind of to other places. So, yeah. um, yeah, and then later on we got an Atari, and I think my, but my first experience on Atari was at a friend's house. Like he had Adventure, and I remember going to his house, and he introduced me to this thing, and I remember like he had it was kind of ceremonial, like he closed all the windows, drew, drew all the curtains in the room, <laughs> and then we sat down in front of the Atari, and I think that thing of sort of being blacked out in this space with this TV really made it immersive. Like we really got sucked into that adventure, and that was that was pretty amazing. Yeah, because, I mean because. Especially like with the the early games, like there was such a like there was nothing to compare it to. It, it literally was like I've talked to people about this before about how early arcades were kind of like the the monolith in two thousand one. They're just these things that appear and they promise these brave new worlds to people. It's it's really especially as a kid, like how can you not be entranced by that? Oh yeah, and and did so did these sort of early formative experiences um, feed in? Like did you become gamers for want of a better word like was that something that kind of filtered through the rest of your life like this was an ongoing obsession tim you want to take that one sure first? yeah no i'm just thinking you know um yeah i never really called myself a, like a gamer i mean i don't know I, I i really enjoy going to the arcades we were just kids being kids and that's what that's what kids did yeah and but i have to say though but yeah and i wasn't really good at the uh, arcade games i mean a dollar gave you four, maybe five tokens, and that would be gone in about ten minutes. And it would be, you know, it'd be like a sugar rush, and then you'd be done, and then you'd be sad, and uh, you would just <laughs> kind of move on. And that's why we were happy to have Atari at, at home. Um, but there, it really did instill this sort of uh, competitive kind of vibe that I really have taken, you know, a lot through through most of my life. Um, it, those games are very competitive and very social and it's fun to, you know, one up your friends and, you know, just for bragging rights, even if it's, 
you know, if it's not for a world record, at least just for, you know, in your on your streets, the highest score on Donkey Kong Jr. or something like that. But um, so, yeah, I would say I, I took away with the uh, competitive spirit of all that game playing. But did it like did you, you know, from the Atari, did you then graduate onto say, like the Nintendo and then the Genesis and on and on? Or was you, it just you know, I you came back and forth to. <laughs> You know, I kind of evolved onto, you know, text adventure games like Zork and Hitchhiker's okay, cool. Guide to the Galaxy. And then I went into computer programming. And um, so that sort of launched off into just uh, sort of computer science and programming geekdom for me. How about you, Andrew? Um, would I consider myself a gamer? I, you know, I guess so, because I, I really enjoy playing games. Um you know, and there's different levels of gamers. I mean, I think there's obsessive gamers and gamers who it's just sort of a part of their life, you know, amongst, you know, other things. Yeah, I don't, yeah. Think... I, I don't mean that you'd have to, like, play games exclusively, but just did they, yeah, it was yeah, always in your life from then on kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's I have an appreciation for it. I mean, it's not the defining aspect of my life in any way, but, you know, um, I certainly got really hooked into the Atari and, you know, Certain games I got really competitive on with my older brother. Um, and, uh, you know, the sort of the unfortunate thing about Atari is that you couldn't really save your high scores, like, in the game, you know? So... Did you have, a like, a, a scoreboard separately that you hung up by the side of the TV? Yeah, you'd have to, like, scribble it down on a piece of paper. <laughs> and then, you know, sometimes it was if you played by yourself and got the score, it was a matter of some dispute whether you really did it or not. But, um... You know, later, like Tim, you know, um, you know, I always sort of had a creative bent, so I got into programming as well, and programming text adventures and programming um, simple graphical games and things on my Apple II computer. And then, you know, kind of lost touch with it a little bit when I went to college. I was also an athlete, so I played a lot of basketball growing up and played in college and stuff like that, and also did track and all that. But when I graduated from college, I moved back in uh, with a bunch of guys, and there was an, a, a Nintendo there, and so kind of picked it back up, and so moved on to some of the later console games. And um, when MAME came around many years later, uh, and, you know, and also you know if I, I couldn't help if I was passing some some new arcade game or some old arcade game, you know, in a in a place i'd often sink a quarter in and just see what i could do you know yeah but later later on when mame came around um i really kind of it reawoke something in me and i landed up building a mame cabinet um and this this is really sort of at the beginning of it i think it was probably in the in the late 1990s yeah that's when i first discovered emulation and mame and things yeah, and, and so it totally I, blew my mind because how how on earth can this game fit into two hundred kilobytes? Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and and also just to have all those things just there and not you know for free essentially. Um, so I built a cabinet, and that later is the thing that kind of sparked this movie. You know, so I mean, there's a whole story there, but um, I think yeah, I always felt a connection to it and kind of a fondness for it, and you know, certain games were sort of more for me better than others um but yeah i consider myself a gamer but you, you've both uh, you've both mentioned the sort of similar thing is that you both um uh, both of your appreciations for games are kind of built around competition so what games 
would you consider yourselves a uh, two-part question okay so what games would you consider yourselves uh, best at so to speak and um what games cause the the most arguments because with competitions come arguments especially over high scores and things mm. so tim andrew whoever wants to go first i'll let tim go first because oh sure thanks um <laughs> No, the, the, some of the most competitive games, you know, uh, obviously uh, Donkey Kong for me. Uh, I always, for whatever reason, I like the cute games, Donkey Kong, Cubert, uh, Pac-Man. Um, it was actually really, though, when when uh, we were, Andy and I were working at Battlestar Galactica and he had this main emulator, you know, on in our break room. And there would be a different game every month that, you know, I would sort of obsess over. And one of them was Arkanoid and me and this other assistant editor would just nonstop try to outdo each oh, other, God. staying hours <laughs> after work, you know, go home. And it's like, no, I can do this. Uh, and, you know, eventually of course that that's where Andy discovered Nibbler or rediscovered it. Uh, not, I can't remember. Yeah. I, I, I remember the Arkanoid competition. I wasn't involved in that because I wasn't nearly good enough. But those, that was some pretty dark times there. <laughs> <laughs> and is that purely for, for kudos? There's no money on the line here? No, just for kudos bragging rights. But it means everything in the moment. Oh, absolutely. Of course it does. That's the, the wonder of games. Um, yeah, my, um, you know, I got to say that the even before Tim came on Battlestar, you know, we, we had that game in there, uh, the, the main cabinet in there. And my game was um, Robotron. Okay. And, uh, Robotron Defender, two of my all-time favorite games, both designed by Eugene Jarvis, who's a genius. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, funny, I mean, ironically, right, the, the whole theme of, of battle, you know, or of Robotron is, or, or the story is that, you know, robots are uprising and trying to kill all the humans, and you're there to save them. It's not too dissimilar from Battlestar Galactica itself. Yeah, because so, the humans can get taken over by the the bad guys as well. Oh yeah, right. They can program the the brainiacs can program the yep. uh, women into zombies. Um, but anyway, um, so you know we would have epic Robotron battles when we should have been working. I mean, and by epic, I mean we'd literally be me me and another producer, this guy Paul Leonard, who's on the show with us, um, would literally trade off in a two-man competition that would go into, you know, like 45 minutes to an hour, you know, on that game, sweating, you know. <laughs> and uh, That's impressive. 45 minutes on Robotron is, is, is quite something. Yeah, for a two-man game. And, you know, just hanging on, you know, just like hanging on for dear life on some of these levels. But um, it was, that game is so, it's such a rush. It's so fast. And the just, it's a, you just get bombarded in, with all all your senses are in overdrive, right? So it's your, the visuals are kind of amazing. The sounds are incredible. Um, you've got, you're using both hands, right, to drive the machine. Yep. So it's, it's all consuming. It's, it's pretty much the best, in my opinion, I think the best classic arcade game ever. But. Oh, it's, it's absolutely one of the greatest games of all time. I love Robotron. I actually was in New York just last year and I went to the, the barcades in Brooklyn. Oh, yeah. And I set the weekly, it was a weekly high score. It's not that big of a deal on the Robotron machine, but I was delighted. I was delighted. Nice. I couldn't have been happier. Oh, that's great. Um, I'm interested, Andrew, you, you mentioned, you know, you did a lot of sports and stuff. Um, on the show that just aired or just went out last week, I had Chris Swellentrop, who's um, 
he's a writer for Slate and the New York Times and stuff. He does a lot of stuff about video games. And he had this story of when he was in college, um, basically everybody in his dorm uh, played Madden. They had, they set up a Madden league, uh, yeah. and that became like his glorious kind of sports story of university was playing playing Madden with these uh, the kids in his dorms. Did you ever have? Did your sort of like competitiveness in like actual sports ever feed back into video game sports? Well, you know, uh, I, I wish I had more money. You know, I think um, to afford <laughs> some of those consoles. I just couldn't really. Um, I didn't own one, you know, so it was hard to, uh, you know, hard to get that competitive on it. I do know that when I room, roomed after college, you know, we had um, uh, some some good competition on Mortal Kombat. That was a game that we played a lot. And, um, you know, that was, yeah, we got pretty serious about Mortal Kombat. But uh, the sports games, you know, I like them. I have, you know, NBA 2K and all that kind of stuff I play. And, um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think they go hand in hand. If you're a competitive person, you'll be competitive in pretty much every area of your life. Absolutely, you know what I mean? yeah. Um, it also teaches you to, you know how to lose, you know, and how to be gracious to other people and how to help other people too. I think it's competitive has a lot of dimensions. It's not just, you know, sort of like this um, Darwinistic winner takes all kind of thing. You know, I think there's a lot to be learned from competition. I think, and I also think sometimes it gets sort of a, an ugly name, you know, if you're too, you know, but uh, yeah, I think competition is great though. Um, I'm going to kind of, that is a beautiful and noble sentiment, but my next question goes completely against that. Because I'm wondering when your your worst um, experience of, of rage quitting, of being so annoyed at a game <laughs> that you've had to leave the room or you've broken a controller or, or punched a hole in the wall, as uh, a previous guest has done. Tim. Yeah, I, I'm, I think I might have broken one or two nibbler joysticks on, <laughs> on Andy's main thing. Um yeah, I, I was pretty good with my temper, um, but I mean, I I probably threw a few Atari joysticks, you know, at the television set. Yeah, those uh, you know, classic but, games are so unforgiving. Yeah, uh, but you know, a lot of the the, the classic stand up arcade games, you know, they're they're solid, they're made of wood. You know, you can kind of bang the headboard, you, you know, uh, the front board or the side panel, <laughs> and they're pretty resilient. Um, they're built for angry teenagers. Yeah. I think one point I, I was playing, you know, PGA golf game or something with a very highly competitive tournament with my friends, and I sort of swipe my hand across the top of the game, and there's actually an on and off switch, and I completely killed the power to the whole game. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I turned and I yelled. Uh, I, I I was going to swear, but uh, anyway, you can swear so, if you want. it's fine. Uh, I just said motherfucker, and I turned, and it was right into the waitress's face as she was asking <laughs> if I wanted something else to drink, and I got ejected from the bar for <laughs> losing my temper. I hadn't thought about that in years. That's a good story. Wow, Tim, that's a side of you I've never, I've never. <laughs> um, you don't, ha you don't have to learn how to lose if you, if you never do lose. That's, that's <laughs> my motto. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, in terms of rage quitting, I mean, I've definitely banged my share of consoles, maybe even kicked a game. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've I've heard stories of people punching out, you know, top glass on games. Stuff like that. I don't think I've ever done that. Um, um, I'm trying to think. 
we've been sort of, you know, I mean, I, I remember one point, one summer, um, I was on vacation with my family and we had a moon patrol. We discovered moon patrol and, um, we got kind of mischievous with that game where we like drilled a hole in a, or maybe there was, a, we found a, we found a, a coin that had a hole in it. We just put a piece of string on it and like put it down into the coin slot <laughs> and we're just like kept giving ourselves like extra credits. That's by, some like, sort of like urban myth type thing. I never even uh, known anyone to do that. That's something you see in a cartoon. Oh, yeah. that, was, that was a game that you could continue, right? So yeah. that was, and we wanted, you know, it's, it's like the alphabet, you know, like your first base is at B and then C and then D and like things, you know, the, the enemies keep changing. Anyway, we just wanted to finish the game, and we did limited money at our disposal. <laughs> so we like rigged this thing uh, just so we could get to the end. But that was me and my brother and a, a cousin of ours did that. That was kind of fun. But um, yeah, they they can be frustrating. But you know, the great games you keep coming back to them even if you lose. You know, absolutely. Um, well, speaking of which, like this, obviously we're going to talk more about the the classic game stuff. But in terms of like a lot, a lot of the classic games are very much you know they're the, the aesthetic and stuff is amazing, but they are ultimately like little competitive playthings, essentially. Like, have there been games that kind of shifted your opinion of what a, a game could be? Like, you mentioned playing like text adventures, but ha, ha, has there been a game that's like, oh, hang on, there's more to this than I first assumed? Yeah, I got um, in my early teenage years, I got stuck on a game for Atari 2600 called sword quest earth world and fire world and it was one of these games where if you discover the hidden clues in the game you could um be flown to california to to compete for you know a sort of ultimate sorcery and and you know win twenty five thousand dollars so i was completely amazing. completely obsessed and the, it was programmed very poorly that I, I convinced myself if I played every combination of rooms and objects, then I could I could solve this. And much later, after I did the math, it would take over eighty years to do that. So it was <laughs> it was without cracking the game, it was physically impossible for anybody to actually solve it. You had to you had to guess at the answer. And um, eventually, I was a finalist on <laughs> this this Fire World uh, competition, and they had too many people that also guessed the correct answer, and I had to write an essay on what I liked about the game, but I was only, I think I was only 12 years old at the time, and I wasn't a very good writer, and I, I didn't win. Oh, no. But did people win that? I've never, I've never even heard of that. So like, Someone won, yeah, and then Atari went out of business before they could finish the competition, <laughs> oh, no. so no one won the Sword of Ultimate Sorcery. It's a very sad story. There's a whole other documentary in there somewhere. Oh, that, no. that one guy who never got his uh, his winnings. It is. For, for like the 20 other people that, that didn't make it to Sunnyvale, California, <laughs> they would probably want to see this movie as well. <laughs> how about you andrew is there any game that's kind of shifted what you thought a game could be god that's a really quick good question i mean i'm sure there must be i mean i think some of the more recent games you know some of the mobile app games and things like that um i found really intriguing um monument valley being one of them oh so good um, and then also, you know, recently I've had a chance to, um, get a little bit into the, some of the VR games. Oh, cool. So, um, both, you know, I've done demos on the Vive and also played some stuff on the Oculus Rift. And I mean, those are just, I mean, that's a whole new world, you know, I mean, literally that's, you know, like well, not literally, but like, you know, it's like, it, it's so immersive that it feels like you're entering a whole new world and, or worlds. 
And I think that's going to open up just, I mean, to, and to me, it was very inspiring because I remember as a kid seeing the Atari 2600 on the TV and thinking like, wow, if you could put, you know, a simulation of castles and dragons and things like that on the screen, on this, on this TV, right. And be able to interact with it and manipulate it and move through it and kind of get immersed in it. Then it sort of felt limitless. Like you could do anything you could open, you could make any kind of world on this TV. And it's even more true with virtual reality. So I think we're really on the precipice of an amazing time for gaming and, um, yeah, and so doing some of those demos on the VR stuff and playing some of that stuff, really, it, it kind of rekindled this thing that I felt when I was, you know, however old I was, 10 or 11, whenever I experienced that thing with the Atari, where I was like, oh, my God, there's worlds here, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, I mean, it's kind of terrifying so as well. Potential. But... Yeah. So okay, much so um, let's, let, let's talk about, about the movie then. So this was all kind of born from you having the the main machine in the in the editing room right yeah i mean that's pretty much it we had that 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 machine in there and we would compete on different games and um at one point i pulled up nibbler which you know on the face of it no one i mean mo no one had heard of it really i mean i might have seen one once but i'm not can't even be 100 percent sure of that and we started playing on 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 this game and it starts off very slow, and if you've ever played it, it's almost too slow. You're like, God, this is you know, it's kind of boring, <laughs> you know? Like yeah. how? But then it quickly ramps up in speed, and the interesting thing about the game is that you can kind of improve along with the game getting faster to a point, like most people, to a point. You know, um, the game gets a little faster, your skill improves a little bit the more you play it, gets a little faster, your skill improves a little bit. And so it kind of sucks you in. It has that, you know, there's that... It's almost a perfect kind of like arc that you go that the programmers kind of built into the game, you know, to kind of keep you playing it. Um, the really terrible games are the ones that you put a quarter in and they're so hard that you fail imme immediately, right? Yeah. Uh, Robotron, first time most people put a sink a quarter into that, they just get killed off. They don't even know what's going on or what hit them. Um, so the good games are the ones that allow you to to get a little bit of proficiency and then keep getting a little bit harder as you play it and. Um, and those were the ones that hook you in. And we got hooked in on Nibbler, and we started trading high scores and and uh, breaking joysticks and hurting our shoulders. And then, um, and then Tim, you want to tell him what happened? Well, yeah, I, I, me being sneaky and competitive, I thought, well, you know, maybe there's there's something on the internet about you know the high score on this or <laughs> some because it's it's also like a puzzle Billy game. Mitchell's it's a kind of Pac-Man uh, Pac-Man guys, basically. Exactly, and this is—I think this is before I like I—I I had even heard of Billy Mitchell. Um, but you know, Nibbler is also—it's—it's it's a puzzle too. You know, you have to figure out how to get through through the maze without hitting yourself in the tail. It's—it's it's the same. It's a pattern game, so once you learn it, you can do it. But it, yeah. so it's a puzzle, and it just moves so fast. So it, it's also hand-eye coordination. And I thought, well, if I at least could figure out the the path that I should take, and I just did a quick search, and I this artwork from twin galaxies that i never heard of you know there's this tim mcveigh poster tim mcveigh day you know uh history's first billion points on a video game and there's this you know this awkward looking teenager with a smirk who looked like he hadn't slept in a few days and <laughs> and you know we were i was probably getting around sixty thousand points a game and all of a sudden someone had a billion points it just looked surreal it didn't 
it didn't make any sense. And it just, you know, the name Tim McVeigh really stuck out that that this was just kind of just this really odd, I don't know, moment in history. Yeah. So I made a photocopy of it and I just put it on Andy's door <laughs> <laughs> just to just to mess with his mind. And um, and I think Andy came back from lunch and saw that. Yeah, I saw it on the door and I just thought, I mean, you know, I mean, the only Tim McVeigh I, I had heard of was the Oklahoma City bomber. So I, I was going to mention like, that, yeah, but I didn't want to. I wasn't 100 yeah, yeah. percent sure, but I'm pretty sure he was. Yeah. The bomber. Yeah. No, I mean, so of course, you know, um, it's spelled differently, but yeah. uh, but it's still kind of strange. And then the billion points, and I thought, come on, this is what is this? This is like someone. I thought Tim had kind of made it up, or I don't know. So then I did my own searching around on Google. God bless the Google, and. Um, found this, this magazine article of the first billion point video game and um which is probably still available online somewhere it was written up in a in an early arcade magazine or video game magazine and it had all the hall hallmarks of just like this great coming of age story of this you know kid in a small town and you know sort of middle of america you know it had this whole sort of Americana feel to it and the fact that he did this incredible thing on a game like putting one quarter in and playing you know, had the stamina and the wherewithal and the chutzpah to play for two days in an like arcade two days straight right so no 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 breaks essentially yeah no breaks except you know you know if they build up enough lives and you, they can run to the bathroom real quick or eat you know down a soft drink or eat a slice of pizza yeah but yeah and I just thought my god that's incredible <laughs> that's just amazing and I thought, well, you know, and he, and and then did the calculation and realized that Tim McVeigh was probably about my age, you know, somebody, you know, similar in, in sort of in terms of the trajectory of their lives as me. And I just wondered, like, where was he? Like, what happened to him? What did he go on to do? Like, if he had that much determination as a teenager um, and drive and competitiveness, where did it take him? You know, I was I was curious about that. And I was also just curious about the story getting more information about the story. And so we started, re I started reaching out to see if I could find him, you know? And, and was this like just pure curiosity or did you, had you sort of discussed like, oh, you know, maybe we'd like to do a documentary, let's think of something to do it on. Or was this just pure, like, I need to know how this guy got a billion points on Nibbler. Yeah, it was, it, it was curiosity. And it wasn't even so much about how did he do the billion points. It was just like, who is this guy, yeah. you know? And, um, and also, you know, sort of there was this idea that, you know, I just thought it was a great story and being storytellers, um, we thought it'd be a fun story to share with the world in some form, you know, like maybe do a short form documentary or something just about the first billion point game. Um, so that because historically, like we had never heard of it, but it's a we it felt like a like a monumental achievement. Yeah. And so you know, basically I just did a Google search or, you know, some directory search online and, you know, I came up with like about 18 Tim McVeigh's in Iowa. Believe it or not, there's a lot of Tim McVeigh's out there. <laughs> and so just one by one started going through and saying, hey, are you the Tim McVeigh that scored a billion points on Nibbler? And, you know, you get some guy on the other end of the phone going, what? I don't know. No, just stop bothering me. And slam the phone down. And eventually, um, through looking around, we got hooked up with Tim McVeigh. I think maybe I got a hold somehow... Maybe it was through Twin Galaxies' website because that's where his score was listed. I, yeah, it might have been Walter Day himself who who hooked us up with Tim, and then we decided to go out and do an interview. And this was before—I um, mean, 
if you see the film, you know, you'll see the dates in the film. I think we started shooting back in 2008 or something like that. So this was before we had heard of King of Kong or or any of these other, there's a couple other video game documentaries. Yeah. Um, so Twin Galaxies and Walter Day wouldn't necessarily be in the, this common knowledge, basically. No, I had never heard of it, and we hadn't seen these films. So we, when we went out there, we... We, we had no idea, right? And um, I think at that time, Walter had men mentioned, so we did a, a round of interviews with Tim and Walter and Tim's friend, Mark Hoff. And I think Walter mentioned in passing, oh yeah, there are a couple of the documentary crews out here shooting some stuff, and we didn't really <laughs> think about it. And then um, a few months later, uh, King of Kong was playing in a theater in Pasadena, and Tim, went out, Tim and I went out to go see it. And we were blown away, you know, we're like, wow, that's a, that's a really good gaming documentary. Absolutely. Set the bar very high. But, and so by that point you had kind of decided that this was a, a bigger story, you know, that you wanted to tell. Well, sort of, I mean, you know, I think by that point, Tim had announced, Tim had broached the idea of going for the record again and we were sort of intrigued by that idea and possibly following him to do it but when we saw king of kong we thought how can we possibly compete with that and so i think at that point we we were a little bit discouraged like we thought well you know <laughs> maybe we shouldn't even bother you yeah. know this has sort of been done um but nevertheless we kind of stuck with it and then things just kind of unfolded you know we found Enrico in Italy and we found the programmers and we found different people and so we just kept shooting and collecting footage and because we're editors anyway you know it's sort of easy for us to archive material and then edit it you know when we have time and we kept going with it yeah I mean and eventually you know we just decided to make this its, its own story it's, it's not King of Kong I mean one's about a high score in a popular game. This is a high score in a game no one's heard of. But it, I mean, but it also features marathoning, and that's something that's not really brought up in, in Donkey Kong at all. It's like a two-hour game, two and a half hours. Um, and we tried to offer stuff that that King Kong did not, you know, couldn't couldn't deliver, which was head-to-head uh, -head competition. I thought, well, if Andy and I were thinking, you know, if we can get, you know. Tim and Dwayne playing together, this would really kind of set it apart. And that with the animation and it just became its own movie for us. Yeah. No, that, that's, that, that, that's the, the, the sort of two player kind of at the same time, kind of on a, on a, on a stage essentially is, is very exciting to kind of look at, especially with these kind of games. And the marathoning is, is crazy because there's not many games that kind of require that level of commitment, you know? I mean, there's, there's stories of people playing, like you know mmos and things for countless hours and but but never like to to achieve a high score it's just the endless grind in a lot of those games so right like, that must have been i mean it probably still is like a very unique thing in gaming you know it, it is you know and you have to remember like back in the early 80s you didn't really marathon games because arcades had to close there weren't a whole lot of you know 24-hour arcades so tim mcveigh happened to be in this part of town where he had a relationship with the arcade owner and i think you'll maybe hear one or two stories you know some kid got a high score on asteroids at a 7-eleven and you know but but very few games you know would allow you know that that kind of setting to to do a marathon yeah no totally 
And so yeah, how did you... Uh, so carry on, Andrew. No, I was just going to say it was sort of the right set of circumstances for Tim to do it. And um, and the other thing, you know, in terms of decision-making, uh, you know, following Tim to do it, you know, it's just beyond just the competitive aspect. It's just so hard to, you know, the, the grueling kind of experience of watching a guy just try to play a game for that long has an inherent drama in it that goes even beyond competition. You know, it's it's sort of a an epic thing that he that he's trying to do just in terms of his own physicality and, and body. Yeah, like doing anything for sort of you know more than twenty four hours is insane. Right. And so I thought of, you know, films like Hands on a Hard Body or, you know, there's just other things. You know, there's there's a there's a documentary about these guys, the ultra marathoners and stuff like that. And so I thought, yeah, you know, it's that that alone even if you don't care about games or anything, is interesting to watch. And and then the other thing, you know, because people often point out the comparison to King Kong, and I suppose it's inevitable, um, is that, you know, there's, I always say there's a lot of room in the genre to do different kinds of movies, you know, just like there's many different kinds of boxing movies, you know. Yeah, if, absolutely. You know, like, if everyone had given up on doing a boxing movie after Raging Bull, then, you know, we wouldn't have had Rocky or... or the fighter or you know not any number of movies so i just think you know um we felt that there was room to tell another story and that it was a good story and it is i mean we've had a good response uh to the film and and so you know that's proof in itself i guess but it's quite interesting like because um not to kind of force comparisons between the two but because it's such a a kind of a niche area basically this kind of like classic competitive gaming you would inevitably be featuring a lot of the same people that would have been in king of kong but you'd see them in a a totally different light and i'm thinking specifically of of billy mitchell because he is commonly kind of cited as the the villain of uh, of of king of kong whether that's fair or not but in this he's not right he's much more of a, a kind of supportive person oh absolutely yeah i mean Right, it's it's a small circle of people that do. I mean, relatively small circle of people that mm. that still do this. So, of course, you're going to come across the same people. Um, you know, Bill is in the movie because he was there to witness the first billion point game. You know, he was in the arcade when Tim did it, and so he has. There was a natural reason to include him in the film. And Walter, of course, owned the arcade where Tim did it. Um, so yeah, and you know, I think we portrayed everybody. <laughs> And sort of the way they are, you know. Yeah. Uh, Billy does have, you know, he's larger than life and he's got a big ego, but he's also, in truth, um, a good guy and very supportive of other players. And I think not quite the guy that was portrayed in King of Kong, you know. Um, I think they skewed that movie to kind of create a hero and a villain in a very black and white kind of way. Um, and that was something actually that influenced us. Like we wanted to not do that and kind of go the other way. I mean, there's a lot of people that say, well, you know, this is, you know, um, you know, we've had a couple of people, a couple of comments that it's a, uh, formula uh, that our film is, is formulaic is the King of Kong because, you know, they see a hero and a villain and that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, I think it was our intention actually not to do that and to kind of show, the different dimensions of these players, you know, there's Tim that's two struggles and quits and rage quits. And at times, you know, does it in kind of an angry or even ugly way. But 
also has a lot of you know great qualities and a lot of really endearing qualities um, and things that you that make you love him and root for him. And similarly with Dwayne, you know, there's there's black and white both to his character, you know. And so for us, it was more interesting to go into the gray areas with these guys and not just try to make one, you know, the white hat and the other guy a black hat. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm I'm wondering, like, is the has the process of of making the the documentary kind of reignited any interest in games that you had? Like, is this something that you've this kind of pulled you back in even more? In terms of like, even in terms of like, like you said, you played a lot of um, virtual reality stuff. Like, would that have been something you were looking into if it weren't for being kind of pulled back into like the the gaming sphere, so to speak? No, I think I would have been interested in that. I mean, one thing that I did do was I built a new and improved um, main cabinet, um, Ultracade Two. Uh, that directly came out of it. Um, but yeah, you know, it's. Um, we enjoyed making the film, and I think, it, yeah, it did strengthen our, I guess, our relationship with ga- gaming in general. Um, but yeah, since we, yeah, since we started making this, you know, movie, there's been a lot of, you know, barcades that have been popping up. Absolutely. You know, you, yeah. So we've, you know, done a, a mini film festival tour. Uh, there was a great arcade in Portland. Uh, really, and it really reignited some of that that nostalgia. I mean. A lot of the, the great stuff about the, the early arcade scene was just all the sounds all at once of being in this room and these large cabinets with huge speakers. And it's just a cacophony of just pure pleasure. Um, so it's really great to like actually kind of see the, the whole scene come back, not, not just be able to play these games online or download a, a code and put it in a machine of your own. It's, they're actually resurrecting you know, the arcade scene. So I think that's kind of been new for at least for me in the last you know five years yeah while we were making this movie it really feels like it kind of has come full circle and i'm happy about that you know museums are now including video games in their collections and there's really an appreciation for that stuff in the culture which had you know it kind of disappeared for a while but i think a good game is just a good game period it's why people still play chess it's why people you know, still like certain card games. It doesn't matter if they're simple or analog or whatever. Uh, if there's a good game, it's just people are going to want to play it. And so I'm glad that these things have kind of lived on. And you see, you see the prices of the cabinets, you know, uh, going up, and people are refurbishing things. And and they're, um, they're things of beauty. Like I remember, I went to an exhibition at the Barbican in London. God, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. And like growing up, all of the arcades I played on would have been probably similar to the the main cabinet that you made, just kind of like a a kind of stock arcade cabinet with the screen in and just whatever the game was. It wasn't the, the bespoke cabinets. So I, right. I, for the first time in my life, I saw like an original Pong uh, cabinet, which is just oh, yeah. amazing looking, like the, more kind of futuristic and sci-fi than, than anything from the past 25 years. It's crazy. Yeah, or like, you know, the early Space War cabinets, yeah. you know, that were like fiberglass, beautiful things, you know, that they feel like they're straight out of 2001 or some science fiction movie. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's great. It's great. I mean, I wish I could have, I wish I had, a, I wish I had a basement where I could stick a whole arcade in. But unfortunately, I don't. <laughs> but people are doing that too, you know? Yeah. Uh, funnily what? enough, one of the, 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 the more kind of interesting VR demos I've seen is somebody just recreating an arcade. 
like right. just full of machines that you can just literally explore as though you were there and just go up and play all the games. Like, it's, it's, yeah, that's right. That's fun. That's that's exciting. Yeah. Um, I have one uh, quick fire question. I, I try and ask everybody this because it's a difficult one. I think. Um, can you think of a game that has made you uh, laugh? Because, like, there's a, especially in the last couple of years with like this indie game uh, renaissance, you know, games are getting much better at kind of giving you more complex emotions rather than just, you know, beating high score and stuff. But I still think one of the, the hardest things that games can elicit is, is genuine laughter. So, can you think of any examples? Um, you know, recently I, I found a, a text version of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and I, I played it when I was a little kid, and I, I had to, you know, redo it, go through the whole entire game <laughs> in a long weekend. Uh, that was funny, but uh, Angry still Birds, holds up, yeah, yeah, it still holds up. And and Angry Birds, of course, uh, was another obsession uh, during the making of our movie as well. And every board has something to chuckle at, I would think. <laughs> That's one of the few games that have made me kind of rage quit. I get very angry at Angry Birds. <laughs> it's not just a clever name. Yeah. Uh, gosh, I'm sure there have been games that have made me laugh. Um, it's, for some reason, you know, I, I'm blanking a little bit. But, I mean, I do know that there's some classic games that Tim and I played, um, like Ant Eater, and uh, <laughs> it's just... Which is just fu a funny name, you know. Yep. Uh, but that and like food fight and um, and journey, like we had a, we had a moment where we were competing on the video game Journey, and that game is so bizarre in some ways that we I think we were laughing quite a bit playing that. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, there are games that can make you laugh. Um, I, I'm I'm weary that you you've got a, a hard eight here, so. Um, if there's anything we haven't mentioned, then please do bring it up. And also, you know, talk about the film. Like, where can we see it and all that sort of stuff? Tim? Yeah, no, the, the, uh, the film is, is out. Uh, we had a digital release on Friday. It's on all digital platforms. Uh, iTunes, Amazon, uh, Vudu, uh, Google+, Plus, PlayStation, Xbox. Am I, am I missing anything? Yeah, anything on... out, Andy? Yeah, so yeah, we're on a bunch of digital platforms, um, including uh, iTunes, right? Amazon, PlayStation, Xbox, Steam. Oh, Steam! There we go. Um, VHX. Yeah, the VHX link. Um, you know, you, and you can get to it through our website, uh, which is www.manversussnake.com, all one word. There's all the links on our page, so if you want to see it, check it out. The VHX link also has a bunch of extra features. Um, Tim and I had 500 hours of material when we made this movie and the original cut was uh, quite a bit longer. Um, but you know, we had to shrink it, we had to shrink it down to what, you know, to, to a reasonable length for viewing. Um, but we preserved a bunch of the best bits that we had to cut out. So we have about 50 minutes of extra features. So if you like the movie, um, uh, if you like this kind of thing, you might want to check out the VHX link cause you'll get the, the extras there and the extras will be uploaded to iTunes shortly it's just um the we're a little bit behind there uh and there's a whole approval process we have to go through so sorry about that sorry. nice that's a pretty rocking ringtone so i'm gonna take this opportunity to interrupt proceedings and to warn you that the 
like when I first spoke to Andrew and Tim, I hadn't seen the movie yet. I didn't. I thought it was still as I just mentioned. Well, no, did I just mention that? I think I'm just about to mention that. Um, that I didn't realize it was actually out. I thought it was still on the the festival circuit. So as soon as I'd finished speaking to them, I went off and uh, downloaded the movie from iTunes and I watched it, and it was it was brilliant. And it immediately kind of brought up a bunch of extra questions that I wish I'd had a chance to ask them at the time. Uh, so they were kind enough to come back on and, and chat about some of those things. So it does contain kind of spoilers, I guess, if, if that's the thing that, that really bothers you. So if you haven't seen the movie, don't listen to the, the next part. Um, but if you have, uh, I, I encourage you to like take a break, go watch the movie, come back, listen to this. But either way, um, just to warn you, spoiler territory, and uh, we go into a much more of the sort of specifics of the movie and some of the, the moments in it. Okay, let's continue i'm still here i'm here oh, okay perfect cool we're all still here that's good um so guys thank you so much for for coming back on for a a, a brief uh, reprise of our chat because uh, i finally got a chance to to watch the movie and it was it was wonderful um oh thanks congratulations I that you hadn't watched it i thought i, I we would have made sure you watched it or something no, no, no problem at all. Like I, di- I didn't realize it was it was even out yet. That was that was why I thought it was still doing like the festival circuit. Um, but when you mentioned it was out, I was oh, I'll, I'll go and get that right now then. Um, and it was great. So I have, uh, based on that, I've got a couple of questions, like a, a follow up questions based on that. Um, first off, the the animation. Who did the animation? That that, that was an inspired choice and really perfectly fit into the the movie. Yeah, the, the animation was done by a, a company down in Australia called Studio Joho, and we just found them online. I was, um, you know, originally in talks with an anim- animation company here in Los Angeles to do it, but they were too busy and too expensive. And so we, um, you know, we, we spread our search wider, and we found these guys, and they had done a series of short animated clips um, that were kind of a spoof of side-scrolling 16-bit video games called Dan the Man. Okay, cool. And uh, and so I thought they'd be perfect, and they, they really seemed to have a great sense of humor and love video games, and they were willing to work with our budget, and they were just great. you know. And they were also going to give us, you know, some of the other companies that we talked to um, said, well, you know, we can do you know, five frames per second animation. You can you can kind of do these holds and moves on frames. But uh, Studio Joho said that um, that they would do thirty frames per second animation, fully you know, full, fully realized um, and colored and all that stuff. So they were just great. You know, they were a great find. And I also landed up using them in the Atari um, documentary I did. There's a short clip where ah, okay. we show the Mercury pr- pigs down in the pit in Alamogordo. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of like an old Atari game, so they're great. I recommend them highly. And, and what stage did did you sort of have that idea, like to add in the the animation to the documentary? Uh, well, pretty early on. I mean, I think um, since we we're limited in, in the amount of archival material that we had for the film, um, we had a bunch of photographs and we did have a little bit of video. But you know, to really tell that story and to to dramatize it and to illustrate certain points. I realized that we were going to need some kind of device, so either graphics or animation. 
And I had directed a little bit of animation, a uh, series of webisodes for Warehouse 13, which is a sci-fi channel show. So I had some familiarity with animation. And uh, yeah, so it was just sort of like a natural choice. Like, well, let's just animate these sequences. You know, and for a long time, there were just title cards in the film. You know, like you'd watch it and you'd have these 30-second long, you know, whatever, just title cards describing yeah. what animation was going to be. And the film really didn't play very well. <laughs> It's like the old kind of like World War Two footage in Star Wars before they finished the the effects. Exactly, but even worse because there's really nothing to kind of show <laughs> it. Um, it was really just living in our imagination. But then once um, once the animation got in there, the film kind of took on a whole new life. So it was really exciting, you know, and, and really it gives it a lot of charm and and makes it very accessible for people. Kind of welcomes them into the film in a way. Yeah. So, no. Totally. Yeah. Um, the other thing that really sort of stood out for me was the the, the time scale. Like th this is crazy. So you know, you, you you both decide on making this documentary and and following this uh, this line into the the history of of Nibbler. But the actual arc of the story is kind of is is Tim kind of trying to recapture this pride uh, of his youth. But there was it was literally like years before you get to the kind of the, the, the ending, so to speak. So what, what was that like, you know, as documentarians, were you just like, okay, well, we spent two years on this. Maybe if we wait another, I think it was like three years at certain points and maybe we'll get an ending then. Yeah. Tim, do you want to talk about that? Sure. Well, I mean, yeah, it was uh, time was a challenge. Uh, you know, we, we started in 2008 and, um, really just to interview Tim and Walter. And, and it was a few months before Tim decided to actually even uh, go for it again. And, and did, you, in, did I mean, you encourage him to do that? Because obviously that's, that's a big part of the, the, the movie. I, you know, it was something that we supported, but it was, it was ultimately his idea uh, yeah. to go for that. And, you know, if he was going to do it, we were going to shoot him. And I think we were we made a really conscious effort to not pressure him into doing anything. We we really wanted this to, to be organic and to come from him, and and we supported that. We were we were of course disappointed because <laughs> uh, we were there for you know the first three his first three attempts, um, and then we just started sending camera people out for subsequent ones. Uh, and to be honest, yeah, it was a challenge to kind of decide where this movie was going to go. We had, you know, the controversy with Dwayne's board, which we can get to later, but that was, we didn't, we had a lot of loose ends there. We didn't know what, what was going on with Tim. So we really did find ourselves in a hiatus. And um, so we were just stockpiling footage and, and just, uh, you know, trying various things to see how, <laughs> what our story was. We didn't really quite know what our story was until we actually got the record. Yeah. I mean, that must've yeah. been like, I just from a kind of creative point of view that must have not frustrating necessarily because you know you're making a documentary so you're documenting what happens but you know at what stage there must have been a point where you were like well maybe we just finish it here because you know it was it was literally like years before you got the, the full arc of the story yeah well you know the thing is it wasn't our it wasn't our day job right so we're busy <laughs> doing other things and um you know, and it's, we're not getting paid to do it. So it wasn't our livelihood. It was just something that we kind of, you know, could afford to carry with us over the years as, you know, and kind of chase the story. I mean, I think the most thrilling documentaries are the ones where the story un unfolds before the filmmakers, you know, as they're doing it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, 
But there's also a danger in that because you don't know where it's going to go or if you're ever going to reach sort of a satisfactory point where you say, okay, we can wrap it up. And um, yeah, so, you know, there's a quote that I, that I love and I, and I often repeat, which is that in feature films, the director is God, but in documentaries, God is the director. And it's <laughs> totally true. Like, it's just, you know, but it's also what kind of made it exciting for us because there were these weird twists and turns, you know, where we thought, you know, initially, okay, Tim, you know, we did an interview with him. We'll tell the story of the first billion point game. Okay, Tim, you know, wants to go for it again. And we support that, you know, or we'll film that. And um, and then Dwayne comes out of the woodwork, you know, and, and Dwayne was a very colorful character, character. And that was not somebody who we had set out to document or follow or portray he just kind of emerged into the storyline, you know, but that was great. And then we thought, okay, well, you know, we'll wrap this up at MAGFest. Like, they'll go head to head, someone will get it, or neither of them will get it, or one of them will faint, you know, at the controls, or something will happen, and we'll wrap it up there. And if that had happened, that would that trajectory would have been about a year, right, yeah. from the initial interviews. And we thought, that's reasonable, you know, so let's get out there and let's film that. And, of course, you know we get there and there's no games, you know, and a lot of people might just at that point go, well, you know, but you know, those are the things that happen in, in documentaries that actually, you know, are kind of exciting and kind of add drama. And so, you know, I, I think if you're going to be a documentarian, you kind of have to embrace the unexpected and sort of be willing to go on that journey. Um, and if you're not willing to really kind of go on that journey and, and follow it all the way through, then you shouldn't be making, a film you know you shouldn't be making a doc you should be making a film not a documentary you know? absolutely yeah because it's out of your control but yeah i mean there were times you know where tim would come to me and say tim kinsey would come to me and say well you know well maybe we could just you know we could make it about a guy who like just failed to like recapture <laughs> the glory of his youth and a guy who you know <laughs> kind of suspect board and i said look you know i don't i just don't think that would be very satisfying as a film you know we have to kind of we have to do a little more digging and, and a little more shooting and see what happens so yeah because there, there is it. an expert i mean i suppose that the like as as i'm watching it you you get this expectation of like okay this has to kind of resolve itself but of course then this is after years of editing so you, you you'll you'll have that story in mind when you're you're putting together the footage you know yeah yeah absolutely i thought it was kind of fun to you know put the audience through what we kind of went through a little bit you know towards the end uh not absolutely. to not to really even know if he did or like oh is this it did he did he really oh i guess he didn't get it and you know but it was still entertaining i guess that's okay and then you know kind of a happy surprise at the end i know that one of the interesting things after, after speaking to you both and, and getting the kind of the the backstory from where this kind of idea first generated i thought it was interesting that neither of you or you decided not to put yourself in the documentary at all like you were literally just the observers was that a very conscious decision is there a cut of it somewhere where you know you have your both of your stories in it as well no i mean we never shot ourselves i mean it was something i was always very felt very strongly about um is that we should sort of be invisible. I mean, there are a couple moments where you hear our voices in the film or you catch a glimpse of, of me or Tim, like very briefly, but um, no, we never, we never wanted to make ourselves part of the story. It's, it's not really about us. Although 
you know, I often find the making of these kinds of things can be quite amazing, <laughs> you know, like the truth, the story behind the story. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it wasn't about that. And there, there wouldn't have been enough room in the film to kind of even include that stuff. So, yeah, I thought, I thought it best if it was as unmediated as possible, you know, just kind of look at it and put people in that world. And, like, one of the things about that, that that's kind of what the reason I was curious about that is because, I mean, you answered this already a little bit, but you were both present for the, the first kind of two or three marathons, right? Yeah. And, and like, yep. what must that, what was that like? Like, did you, did you marathon with him? Did you kind of stay up and, and, you know, run the full kind of 40 hours? Well, well Matt, Magfest was the, uh, was the first film he did. I, I know Andy was up for like the, the biggest longest shift getting all the, all the games, you know, documenting, getting the games together and making sure that they were, up and running but we were mostly up and then we kind of took turns it's like hey now your turn to sleep for three hours or four hours and just making sure someone was always there with the camera that must have been quite intense though because like it's not just i mean obviously you're going to be invested in 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 tim and you know you, you want him to succeed exactly the way the the audience does but also this is a movie this is something you've spent years of your life on so it must have been really quite like just so disheartening like the times that it kind of failed <laughs> yeah it's 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 really hard to watch you know it's really hard to be <laughs> especially i mean magfest was one thing there was so much chaos going on and there's so much so many people around and um that was kind of a unique experience um and he also had like a hotel you know it was in a hotel it was in the hilton so you could kind of go up to your bed and like you know face plant and yeah and like sleep for a few hours and go back downstairs um, but you know, when you're in Tim's living room, right. And there's really no place to go and it's a small little house and, um, you know, there's barking dogs, um, and you're rooting for the guy and, it, and, you know, it's like the tension in the air is so palpable. Like, you know, when they describe like you could cut it with a knife, I mean, it re really true, you know, nobody wants to, especially towards the end when he's struggling, you know, nobody wants to say anything, say anything wrong, do anything that might, you know, distract him or, yeah, you know, and you really do get a good sense of that in the film. Like, it is really, it gets uncomfortable at times. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah not a good time for an interview, right, Tim? No. <laughs> you know, none of that stuff. Yeah, so, and, of course, you don't know what's going to happen. You're hoping, you know, as a filmmaker, you're hoping for the best. You're like, oh, well, if you got it, that would be great. But, you know, in the end, I wouldn't change anything. I mean, I think the fact that he got it on Christmas and he got it the way he got it. Um, you and know, were you guys watching the, the live stream at the time? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we had, we had the stream, uh, we weren't there, you know, um, but, uh, nobody was there, but, um, yeah. And then getting that news that he got it, uh, you know, at that point we really knew, okay, we've got to figure out how to wrap this up. But then of course, you know, we're in the middle of different jobs and we're, um, you know, you know, just w what would our schedules permit? So it actually took a little time from there for us even to, shoot the wrap-up interviews and all that kind of stuff okay well while well, speaking of wrapping up i've got one more more question for you which hopefully will tie this all together because the the reason that uh, you guys that the, the thing that set you off on this whole journey was an attempt to improve your your nibbler scores so did did your nibbler scores improve did you learn are you are you good uh tim i think tim had <laughs> i i gave up i gave up man i mean after i saw someone get a billion points if i can't be the best at something 
some <laughs> a part of me always just kind of doesn't want to even bother and I felt satisfied enough to see somebody else just take it as far as it could go. So yeah, I, I felt satisfied. Yeah, I don't think we ever got higher than, I mean, maybe I got half a million and Tim got, or a little more, and maybe Tim got 700,000, something like that. But I don't think we, I don't think we ever broke a million even on the game. So no. <laughs> it's, it's, it's tough. You know, it's a tough game, but it's fun. And, um, I would encourage people to check it out. You know, I just got an email yesterday from someone that's developing a, um, what do they call it? It's like a wide, some sort of board. Um, let's see if I can find the email real quick. But anyway, anyway, it's a custom board that you can use, you know, because nibbler, nibbler boards, you can't find them anymore. But there's a bunch of hobbyists that put together, um, you know, FP, what they call FPGA boards, which are like, they're not emulation. They're actually running off of hardware. Uh, and so there will be an FPGA nibbler board um, available for hobbyists that want to build their own nibbler cabinets, which I think is really great. Oh, that's cool. You're going to you're gonna start the nibbler resurgence here. Yeah, why not? You know, who knows? I mean, the thing is, it's like I, I would love to see the nibbler contest go on, you know, sort of in the end credits, as, as you saw in the film. Yeah, there was see- loads of people. Yeah, other people playing, and you know, it could keep going on and on. You know, it's just I'm waiting for some, you know, whippersnapper and you know, Korea or you know, Sweden or someplace to like put together their nimbler thing and play for sixty hours. You know, and see what they can do. <laughs> um, so, what is what's next for you guys? Have you got another any other projects in line? Have you been inspired by any of the games from Maine? Um, I, I'd love to do another gaming story, another video game related story. I don't know that I would do another competition doc. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I love that culture. I love that world. So yeah, I mean, if, if someone has a good story out there, you know, tell us, you know, but uh, there's other things, there's other, other things we're working on. Cool. Um, well that, that is, that is perfect. Those are all my, my follow up questions. Um, Thanks, thanks so much for coming back on the on the show. Very briefly, Tim, I'll, I'll let so you much, go Michael. and uh, go on your flights. Enjoy your time away. Total pleasure. Thanks, man. Thanks a thanks lot, so guys. Much. I'll speak to you soon. Bye bye. All right, take, take care. care. Bye bye. What's What's God, I'm sick of that question. <laughs> and everything. Wow, I need to get good at this game. Is there any cute girls watching? No. That game is crazy. Not a lot of people have done that. Home route. If you want something bad enough, go get it.